After decades of falling investment in public housing, it seems that governments are finally taking seriously the need to increase social housing and include low-cost accommodation in new developments. What changes are we seeing in this space and has the rental crisis resulted in our governments learning from the mistakes of the past? Assuming new policies and funding have the desired effect, how long will it take before the crisis abates? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we're delighted to welcome back Michelle Adair to the podcast. Michelle is a CEO of the Wollongong-based Housing Trust, which builds and manages affordable rental housing for people on very low to moderate incomes. And they've currently got a portfolio of over 1,200 homes, another 200 in the pipeline. And in December last year, Michelle was appointed the inaugural Chair of Homes Tasmania, a new statutory body tasked with delivering an additional 10,000 social and affordable uh, homes in 10 years. Now, Michelle was previously the chair of the Community Housing Industry Association of New South Wales and is a passionate advocate in this space. Thank you so much for coming back, Michelle. There seems to be a much greater awareness now of the need for governments to participate in providing housing for low-income earners. Does this fill you with hope? Absolutely, it does. The conversation has completely changed uh, in the last 12 to 18 months. We've uh, now got a very much broader cross-section um, of the business community, including, for example, the Business Council of Australia um, and, you know, superannuation funds um, and uh, conversations with uh, with our banking industry. We've got uh, private property developers and real estate agents and construction companies and uh, certainly as well. Uh, um, a very broad base of recognition of need for change uh, from all levels of government around Australia. So, um, yes, um, unfortunately, it got to the point where we had an increasing number of um, people experiencing homelessness and in really significant crisis before um, we woke up uh, as a nation, but we are well and truly awake now, and that's the first step to finding solutions. I guess it also kind of reminds me of the climate crisis, right? Like, it, it, unfortunately, we're not going to take action until we see it on our doorstep, right? Or we know someone who's experiencing it, etc. Um, what how, I mean, is it frustrate you that we've had to, you know, you've probably been banging this drum in the corner for, for many years and you've seen the writing on the wall and you can see all those those issues and the things that we need to do. Is it Does it frustrate you or, does it, or is it you more, I guess, the class half full and think, right, well, it is what it is. Let's just let's take action and let's pick up the pace. Uh, I think both things, Chris, probably. My um, my glass is always at least three quarters full. <laughs> uh, thank goodness, because, uh, gosh, I don't know how I'd get out of bed some days um, if that wasn't the case. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, um, I'm also somewhat encouraged that um, I'm no longer only a bleeding heart lefty. You know, that's, that's a label I, I don't mind wearing with pride from time to time. Um, but with my background um, and being able to very comfortably and very genuinely argue the case from a productivity, economic participation, long-term social inclusion, 
um, you know, the reduction in health bills, the um, the reduction in, um, uh, you know, unemployment and crisis and increased benefits from participation in education and you name it. Um, as, as I've probably said to you um, before, um, Maslow's no longer particularly sexy in academic circles, but he's right. There's nothing in life that's possible without a safe, secure, affordable home. And here we are having very different conversations, which is great. Do you think you're rocking up at the fight with like so much like body of work, right? Body of evidence. Like you've been having to, because you haven't been able to, you know, get the noise, you've had to kind of go deeper on the research and get more and more evidence and build that business case, I guess. So now when they're coming to you, you know, asking questions and wanting to be involved, you can hit them with all this and it's almost much easier to, to get traction. Yeah, look, I think so. But I think to, to your comments earlier, it's more about the fact that every one of us knows um, at least somebody or increasingly um, multiple numbers of people um, who are experiencing this crisis. And it's when a problem has personal implications and when you see the fear and the uncertainty in your kids, in your next door neighbours, oh, gosh, what do you mean you're moving? Oh, you, you're selling up. Oh, um, you, what do you mean somebody's had to move in back home? You know, unfortunately, it's all of those really respectable, nice people um, with full-time, well-paying jobs um, that uh, have made the reality um, very personal and, and almost legitimised it. You know, I've, I've done a lot of work uh, earlier in my career in health, um, and it's a sad reality. You know, you can raise money for sick kids, but when you try and raise money for sick adults um, or without the emotion of a very high-profile experience, you know, um, and, and that's... You know, I, I guess that's just the way we're wired, um, unfortunately, as people. But we're here now. One in five, uh, one in three, rather, one in three Australians rent. Um, there is, um, I think, a growing acceptance. Um, all of the economists are saying the number of people that will ever own a home is continuing to decline. We're not going to turn that around. Um, so, how do we value renting? How do we change the conversation? And um, how do we? How do we really embrace people um, respectfully and value the fact that uh, an increasing number of people are going to rent for their whole lives? This it used to be, you know, when 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 we were kids um, in in the eighties and nineties, if I can be so bold as to include you in my numbers. Um, you know, um, there was an expectation, of course, that you leave home, you rent for a while, you rent when you get your first job, and, and then you buy. Um, and that used to be what happens, but we know now that an increasing number of people will be renting for their whole lives. Um, we know that, of course, with what's happened to property values, um, even if you have owned a home for decades and your relationship break down, you're um, really going to be hard up against it, both of you, to be able to buy back into the market. So there's two more people that uh, are in the uh, in the queue for a rental property. I was actually pleased to see some of the um, government some government incentives for first home buyers extending the definition of first home buyers to people who, you know, not current homeowners. You know what I mean. So people in that situation that do need assistance, you know, in the sec the single family benefit and so some of those uh, benefits there. So that's interesting to see that sort of definition, I guess, extended. So. Um, 
Michelle, I think I was trying to remember back to the first time we met. We met, I think, back in 2018 we interviewed you the first time and we've had you back since then, of course. And, and even when we had you on the, the podcast, it was like, oh, this is this is a, a podcast for property investors. This is a property, you know, podcast for people who own property and and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long bow having a conversation with somebody in community housing. But it, it is quite incredible to see how the conversation has changed, particularly this year, really. It's, it's very recent. Now, your Tasmanian appointment, which is the end of last year, that's that's come about since we last spoke. Um, and before we, I guess, we go more nationally in this discussion, do you want to fill us in on the situation there? Sure. Um, in many ways, the, the demand and the issues are, are, as we see, you know, elsewhere on the mainland. Uh, I need to also preface this. I'm not officially the spokesperson for Homes Tasmania. Um, so I will do my, I will do my job as, as chair and, and speak broadly. Um, but the needs are, the needs are just as acute. Um, you know, we're talking, uh, variations in severity or in vacancy rates. We're not talking a substantially different market. Um, with one exception, perhaps, um, the impact of short stay accommodation hit Hobart um, as as a city, as a destination earlier than it hit most other places. Um, so that is a trend. Uh, and in fact, some of the first really good research around the impact of short stay um, accommodation on the long-term rental market was in fact done in Tasmania. Um, so that's a substantial piece of work in the last 12 months that is very helpful in, in how do we sustain tourist-based economies um, while understanding and mitigating the impact on the loss of um, permanent housing. So so that's an implication. Um, the the Tasmanian government is really to be congratulated uh, during the course of last year when they established the Homes Tasmania Act. Um, they recognised, unlike most of the mainland states that have said, we need to invest more in housing and we may need to amend our, some of our residential tenancies laws and provisions and the like. Um, the Tasmanian government did that, um, but they also said we really need to reframe and rethink how we go about the whole housing system. Um, and so the Homes Tasmania Act is established within that context there is an overt expectation from the Act um, that we, as a as an as an organisation, statutory authority, that we not only ensure that we are providing housing to people at the really low income end, so that um, crisis accommodation, homelessness, um, social housing um, spectrum, but that we also provide recommendations and uh, work across the rest of the housing system uh, very explicitly to ensure that the housing needs of Tasmanians and of the economy are met through a sustainable, viable, diverse housing system. So it's uh, it really is landmark legislation and a really innovative approach. Um, the state's first housing strategy is uh, is about to go to cabinet. That's um, been really extensively, you know, consulted and and worked on over about twelve months now, uh, maybe even a little longer. And uh, it has a very bold and a very exciting. Uh, ambition uh, about the provision of, of housing for the state. So I'm really proud and, and really excited about the work we're going to be able to do there. Great. And the irony is it's the only non-lefty government in the country. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I think actually on that, um, many, many years ago in a, wearing a very different hat, 
um, I did a comparative analysis, um, little small things, um, on um, the New Zealand and Australian approaches to defence and to health, just a small little consultancy gig that I had for a while. And what I what I learnt from that is that in a smaller economy, in a in a smaller jurisdiction, which is New Zealand compared to Australia, um, problems, challenges, things hit harder, they bite harder, um, more quickly, um, and therefore those jurisdictions are almost required to be more nimble, more strategic, to be more courageous. And I see very, very similar parallels with what we are doing in Tasmania compared to the mainland on housing. Really interesting. Now, the short-term um, rental impact, it's something that we've sort of skirted around the edges here. We, we have mentioned it a number of times, but we haven't had any hard data to, to sort of talk to other than anecdotally. And we can see that it's it's certainly impacted regional areas, probably more than our capitals, but um, other than Hobart, of course, which is a capital. But what what is the real reality of the impact? Are you able to talk to that for a moment? Um, look, uh, I don't have the hard numbers in front of me, but but certainly that report I mentioned earlier does have hard numbers. We have seen, and of course, housing, as, as we have discussed before, is a very complex environment. It is very significantly impacted by our tax treatments and investment treatments, and and we are seeing, particularly from the federal government, appropriately, um, you know, some some thinking or not um, around some of those tax provisions. Um, but what we have seen is that you know, if if I if I own a, a second or a third property, it is a reality. I can get much higher income return from that property by letting it for short stay uh, accommodation than what I can get by letting it for um, you know, a full-time rental. So that's kind of the fundamental problem. Now, if all we're thinking about is um, an individual's right, as indeed I would support, to manage their property um, as best they see fit, that's appropriate and it's one perspective. But we also need to think about, are we understanding, are people playing by the same rules? So the hotel industry and, and motel association have said for decades, hang on a minute, we've got to have, we've got to have, you know, fire doors. Hang on a minute, we've got to have minimum standards. Hang on a minute, how come those rules don't apply if this is otherwise a personal dwelling? So that's been a factor for a long time. Um, we know that if uh, local government areas are not inclined um, to, uh, to approve um, DAs for service departments, for new hotels, for uh, for guest houses and and things. Um, well, how is the economy of that of that tourist community going to continue to thrive and 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 grow and prosper? Um, so, like all things, you know, it's it's not a it's not an either or. Um, we have to we have to plan for these things with a really respectful, open, and collegiate um, community view and focus that that allows time for transition, um, but doesn't shy away from the evidence of some hard, difficult facts. I mean, one of the wonderful um, opportunities to reform the tax legislation that I think is really interesting, um, um, but I might be one of the only people that's brave enough to say it out loud, um, is, you know, if a property is, for argument's sake, um, only leased for, say, four months of the year, four months out of 12, 
why don't we only allow four twelfths of the tax deductibility and why don't we only allow you to write off four twelfths of your rates and four twelfths of your interest and four twelfths of this? You know, I mean, because that's the only time that that asset is generating an income for you. So, you know, I th- I think I think now is the time for us to have some more courageous, creative conversations about the impact of short stay housing. But as I say, very critically, um, with with great empathy for the communities that rely on it. It's a hard one, right? Because they've. Um they put all these mandates on, you know, short-term lettings to say you can only have 180 days, right? Um, and it's almost like you're sort of restricting it, but it's, you know, potentially they, they'd be better off to have two short-term lettings doing 365 days than two doing 180 days, right? So it's sort of, you yeah, know, yeah. it's sort of counterintuitive <laughs> sometimes, those policies. I think I think you're right. It's it's a, it's a catch-22. Airbnb is amazing to use, right? Um, and But, you know, there's a social issue. in It's sort of like it's potentially we've got to work with it, but... It's how do we integrate it into our communities at a sustainable level? And do you think that what Victoria is doing? I mean, I think they're potentially just going to charge a, a minimal fee. I think it's only a few hundred dollars and potentially a record keeping of them. But there's nothing stopping it, I guess. Is What's your take on it? Look, I, I think it's one of those situations where we'll um, benefit if we have um, multiple initiatives and pilot programs that are properly evaluated and thoroughly understood for specific periods of time. Um, and, you know, in that it, it, they need to be for long enough. We know that some some destinations with, with short-stay platforms are, uh, are very seasonal. So, you know, um, if we just do something and we only have a look at the, you know, the summer months um, in a in a coastal town, it's going to be an entirely different uh, evidence base to if we have a look at it over a couple of seasons where we've got, you know, really lousy wet winters and we've got, you know, um, road closures because of, you know, God forbid, another bushfire or we've got something, you know. So we've we've got to take a really strong evidence base. And again, in Australia, um, we have the ability to be able to look at a number of jurisdictions overseas and see how they're managing it. You know, they're, we, don't, we don't have to pretend that we're... Um, coming up with uh, new solutions. If if there's one thing I continue to be very frustrated by, it's the expectation that governments have of, let's be innovative. No, can we just do what we know works? Like, seriously? Um, it's um, um, it, it's not always a, it's not always a good idea to chase new and shiny. Sometimes you know it's that that stuff around. Um, don't let the best be the enemy of the good, and and don't pretend that we have to invent everything new for the first time. Is is your thoughts aligned to the? the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund or whatever it's called, um, those sort of initiatives, what's your thoughts on that? Like, is it, do you think that they're just trying to buy votes and show that they're spending some money, but, you know, they're not going to the community and say, what's actually going to get results? It's more about a number uh, uh, that, that has gets, gets airtime rather than what we actually need. Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit and, and make sure that we're, we're talking um, in real terms as, as best we can at this stage. Um, we have a need in Australia today for about 640,000 homes. At its best, the Housing Australia Future Fund, the HAF, might deliver about 40,000. We are talking about um, investing $10 billion and only using the interest that is earned from that investment. As yet, the legislation does not guarantee a minimum of $500 million, which is the number that's often spoken about. If the investment return for the $10 billion only delivers $200 million one year, that's all that will flow. No developer 
whether they're a not-for-profit community housing provider like the Housing Trust or a private property developer, private industry, government, not-for-profits, we've all got to be a part of this solution. And some of the very good thinking and some of the very good work around the accord and, and around uh, the principles on, on which um, Housing Australia, which is the overarching kind of body, is, is going to be established very collaboratively and, and uh, really beaut. And, and we've seen some very good um, initiatives and, and collaboration and, and, you know, national cabinets and think tanks around that stuff. So it's, the government's really to be congratulated about that and so too are all the states and territories who have come to those conversations in a very open and collaborative frame. Um, but as yet, um, there's no guarantee that how much money we will have. You can't build a pipeline. The biggest thing that property developers, the housing industry needs is certainty. We have none about the minimum. The current legislation also says once it hits $500 million in return, it taps, it turns off. So if, so if those investments actually deliver $800 million, we're not going to get it. So what's the point of that? Although you could argue that they need to keep, um, they need to preserve the capital in the fund, and obviously ten billion dollars, if it's if it stays at the same amount, is going to go down in value over time. And in and in fact, there's no guarantee yet that it's going to that that ten billion is going to be topped up with CPI either. Mm, mm. And I mean, look, it's interesting actually because there's a national housing and homelessness plan that is. Um, in the process of being developed, and that's just one element of it. Um, the Greens have had a lot of airplay by trying to stall that particular piece of legislation we were just discussing. And, and I mean, looking outside, looking in, I, I feel that's disruptive, to be quite honest, but you may agree with them, I don't know. We will ask you that in a moment. Um, but there also as part of that, the federal government recently revealed its ambitious plans to build 1.2 million dwellings over five years, which is only... 200,000 more than the previous target anyway. So once again, it's like, you know, let's let's understand the numbers. <laughs> you said we need 600,000 now, so that's not even going to do the job. But but even that is ambitious. So do you think that's achievable? And, um, and what do you think about the National Housing and Homelessness Plan as it's unfolding? Well, uh, 1.2 million homes um, is a stretch of somewhere, depending on the state, uh, of somewhere between an additional 20 and 35% capacity. It's a lot. It's um, arguably unrealistic on a national level. Might, might uh, a couple of the states and territories be able to get where they need to go? Maybe. Um, can we do it nationally? I think it's entirely unlikely. Um, I do believe in targets they are necessary. We have seen the benefit of that in Tasmania around what it takes to be able to, you know, really focus everybody's attention and to think differently. So targets are a really good idea. Um, I'm all for stretch targets. Um, but I think at this at this point, um, even the private industry is saying the the likelihood of being able to achieve that number is um, really very low. Um, there is also um, a growing... Um, opinion around the fact that if we're not careful about how we invest, we may supercharge part of the industry in a way that has unintensive, unintended negative consequences, as indeed we saw with Home Builder, where all it did was push prices up. It became more inflationary. So the focus has got to be 
How do we increase the supply of social and affordable rental housing? It is a sub-market product. It must have. There is no choice. There must be uh, government contributions. All three levels of government, as again we've discussed before, have a role to play. But a sub-market product, a subsidised product, needs a subsidy. It's got to be very deliberate and very thoughtful. If all we do is build, you know, another million market houses, um, we've never we've we've never had more supply than we've had in the last ten years, and it's never been less affordable. Supply alone will not fix this problem. <laughs> That's a very good point. I, I just want to go back to when we first met. I remember you talking about the Waterloo redevelopment, and you said you were, and I can't remember the exact numbers. You basically said there was something like only an extra nine dwellings for for was that the exact number um, for for you know low income um, people in need basically. Now Min's government has just come out. Recently recently saying that they've suddenly recognised that that wasn't enough and that they've actually increased the proportion of, uh, and I may have the terminology wrong, so do forgive me, uh, of low-income housing as part of the mix in that redevelopment. Um, do you take that seriously? Is that um, is it a genuine and real uh, change, do you think? I, uh, the, simply yes. I, I think um, I think the the new the New South Wales government is very genuine. I think there is uh, very real recognition not only of of the problem and the challenges, but also of the benefits um, of increasing the supply of social and affordable housing. Um, I'm not hearing yet um, an appetite for mandating inclusionary zoning, which is um, simplistically of a medium to you know higher density project. So the numbers economically start to kick in at a, you know, um, a villa or a small apartment block or a townhouse development of around about 15 to 18 dwellings. At that point, what we should be mandating, in my view, um, is uh, a minimum of 30% uh, affordable rental housing in every one of those developments. Um, some of that we're starting to see in the incentives um, that the New South Wales government is uh, is looking at formalising in, in the planning approvals process where you'll get some fast track um, approval as well as additional height or density uh, if you include some affordable housing. Two risks and problems with that. The first is that unless the government mandates that the affordable supply um, is contracted through a regulated um, community housing provider, they will have no compliance, they will have no visibility, there will be no guarantee um, that the stock is actually managed um, for affordable rental. Um, there's a very robust regulatory framework available so the government in my view, um, would be crazy um, not to require that. We are already seeing a lot of shelf company um, tokenistic, oh, I'm a community housing provider kind of um, scams, for want of a better word, um, that, are, that are starting to come into play. Of course. Um, so, um, you know, so the government needs to, needs to be able to leverage a really sophisticated, robust, existing regulatory framework to support their ambitions, which I do believe are very genuine. And the other risk with that legislation is how do we stop a private developer getting their DA fast track approved and getting the uplift and then land banking it, not doing anything with it. Yeah. Um, we need to, uh, and I don't know, that's a really tricky subject, yeah. um, but we need to be able to find a way of guaranteeing that supply actually happens as quickly as possible. And that's from a construction perspective, not just from a DA approval perspective. 
I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Michelle, is there any sort of really low-hanging fruits? Like um, Scott Keck, we spoke about this on the podcast before, came up with a you know innovative solution where basically you rent out a room, you don't have to, you wouldn't be subject to any income tax on um, that, and potentially wouldn't affect your capital gains tax-free exemption if it was in your home, and and that would encourage potentially people to rent out rooms or rent out their granny flat or you know look at you know and then that would help them with their mortgage and things like that. Like, and I think that's a really good option if there was like a moratorium and things like that on that. But you know, is there? Anything in your mind where, you know, you've got 600,000 people, probably a lot of those don't know where to sleep tonight. And, you know, yeah, there's great, we can build more supply and all, but this is years down the line. What sort of things can they sort of hold on to to say, like, if we can work on these things, we'll get solutions in 2023, not 2030? I think the the only options there, Chris, are buildings that already exist uh, or buildings that are nearing completion. Um, there are some options for repurposing existing buildings, and and we can do that. Sometimes it might be, you know, we've we've seen quite a bit of that sort of stuff in repurposing um, uh, uni accommodation or nurses' quarters or uh, motels. You know, the rooms above, you know, some of our lovely old big pubs. You know, some some of that stuff. So there might be some repurposing options. Um, they can be uh, expensive, but not as expensive and um, as you know a whole new build and certainly a much faster conversion often that's an option um, there there are some interesting um, interesting ideas around converting uh, roof spaces either flat roof spaces and maybe putting some sort of modular style uh, quick easy build housing or even if it's just one or two apartments on top of an existing building assuming it structurally sound and all those sort of stuff or, mo- or, penthouse. or yeah 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 <laughs> uh, like seriously modifying modifying a roof space um to convert or create an attic which then becomes you know um spe- so that's an option and then of course there is um there are incentives or or there is the opportunity the mechanism the need for us to be able to grab some of the apartments that are ne- or townhouses or anything else that are nearing completion and say please do not try and sell these more importantly please don't let them sit empty here is a here's a government supported um, incentive program to make those dwellings available for three years five years ten years uh, longer uh, if possible um, for affordable rental um, and that's the only way because if we we all know unfortunately just about everywhere if we say okay tick here's a block of land uh, go build something we've got a year or two in 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 planning and approvals we've then got another two years so the only way that we can get some some quick wins is is if if we've got a structure that is quickly easily converted or is nearing completion do we have a, a better handle on 
all the vacant properties in the country. And I'm sure we've discussed this before, or I've discussed it with someone, um, about, you know, there's something like a million dwellings that are vacant. So out of 11 million, what are, do we know what they are, like the makeup of them and, and how to incentivize or disincentivize people from leaving them empty perhaps? I'm sure some of them are uninhabitable. <laughs> um, I, I'm, a, I'm probably more concerned that the majority of them are actually relatively habitable is, is the bigger problem. You know, you, you often see buildings, construction finishes and the lights just never turn on because somebody's just sitting with them. You know, they've decided they can, they can hold them, which is, which is extraordinary when you think about the cost of financial investment. But um, uh, look, it, it varies. Um, some states, again, Victoria did some pretty good work to try and understand um, at least metropolitan Melbourne vacancies and where they were at. Um, but uh, we don't really know. We don't have sufficient information. And of course, the data comes and that million homes comes from the last um, census. Census, yeah. Um, and they were vacant on that night. We don't know what happened the following weekend or when the people came back from overseas or when, you know. So there's there's a whole range of, of things that are a little bit less certain. It's funny you uh, mentioned that, Veronica, because there's some data that came out last week that um, is electricity usage. I think it might have been the last couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was like 1.3% of homes didn't have any recent electricity usage, right? So that's like, and that goes, you know, like we say census is 10%, but then 1% is recent electricity usage. It Maybe like that's maybe more realistic. It's it's nowhere near this million homes that isn't getting used at all. Um, and maybe that's a, you know, maybe they're only getting part used. Maybe it's a weekend rental. So yeah, maybe it's only at 20% capacity or 5% capacity, but it doesn't seem to be anywhere near as high as what you'd probably th like th those previous estimates would be. Um, is that sort of have you sort of heard, is that your sort of take as well, Michelle? Yeah, absolutely, and and that's my point about you know on that census night the property was empty, um, but uh, you know I really think that that's a very substantial and a critically important piece of work um, that that should happen, um, and and it needs to be very localised um, because again, uh, even if I just think about my work here in across the the Illawarra, uh, which is uh, uh, of course just an, an hour from um, southern Sydney and then down into the Shoalhaven. Um, there is an enormous difference between the north end of um, the Wollongong Council area, say Thoreau, Austin, near Coldale, um, where there are lots of lots of weekenders that might be vacant there, um, is a very different scenario to my my uh, why might something be vacant um, in um, uh, Shoalhaven Heads or East Nowra or Kiama or you know there there are differences. Now, obviously. You know, all these sort of um, plans and, and um, incentives and programs and funding, et cetera, et cetera, is going to take years to trickle down and really make any meaningful difference, um, you know, to helping those in dire need, but also just generally in terms of the rental crisis in this country. At a more sort of micro level, what options are currently open to people who can't afford you know, sorry, can't find affordable housing. I mean, are people still, families still living in tents? Are they still living in caravans? More, more than what they were a month ago. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, actually, just before we, we come to that, um, you just said something really interesting and, and that I think is really important. You just, you just use the, the words trickle down. Mm. That's one of the fundamental problems um, with trickle policy. Down economics. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It simply doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, and that's why I said before, you know, we are talking about a sub-market product. If you could, if anybody 
could make money out of providing social housing, otherwise, you know, public housing, you know, uh, government housing. If anybody could make money out of that stuff, well, they would have been. They can't, right? That's why we now only have about 4% of housing stock in Australia is social housing for people on very low to low incomes. It should be somewhere between 10 and 15% of our total housing stock. That's the gap, right? So there is no way in the world that building more staff is going to somehow make that housing miraculously appear. It's not going to happen. That's the role of government policy and um, of programs and of government investment. Um, and so, you know, we, we've got to do that. So, sorry, bef before I answer your question about, about the range of but it's really important. Before you do answer the question as well, just on that, in a way, I guess, you know, it's like a lot of people have said, oh, the build to rent, that's going to solve the problem, right? And in a way, that will take a certain uh, segment segment of the market out, those people potentially might be renting something less than they could afford if there was other stock available potentially. So maybe in, in that sense, there is downward pressure because people who can't, afford, uh, can't afford, or sorry, can't find accommodation, they will look for lesser um, standard accommodation and they can afford to pay for it, right? So that ultimately pushes people out. And then if you've got that, the short-term accommodation issue too with, you know, Chris's point there is very interesting about, you know, oh, it's been, you know, it's, uh, I might have a house that used to have a low in, a low income tenant, but I booted them out. I did a cheap and cheerful tart up. It's in a seaside location and now I put it on the market, but I can only have it rented for 180 days a year. And so exactly that takes out another property for the whole time, like sitting there empty when people have nowhere to live. Um, so that has all displaced the most vulnerable in our society, right? So you said that there's more people living in tents than there were before. So so even though these other initiatives that are in the commercial space that developers and builders and et cetera can make money from um, don't directly help those who are on low income, surely they would take the pressure off that lower segment of the market. Is that Fair observation or not? Not really. Not okay, really. Good. Not Debunk not off the, it. <laughs> not off the low end of the market, right? They so putting so build to rent and and I, and I love it when private developers. Oh, we've got this new product called build to rent. My organisations just celebrated forty years of doing build to rent. That's what community <laughs> housing providers do. We build to hold. We always have. We've been doing it conservatively for forty to fifty years, right? So you know, there's my there's you know reason number one why I love the word innovation, but. Um, but um, we know that build-to-rent is a really important part of the market. We simply have never had enough of that in Australia. That's absolutely true. And again, relative to jurisdictions internationally, you know, we've got a really big missing piece of the puzzle there. But it is typically a premium product. The reason it needs to be a premium product is they're still really expensive. It's a it, building apartments typically in Australia is still a really, really expensive proposition to be able to, you know, fund particularly with interest rates and and you know property property developers and buildings of uh, builders have been hit with those interest rate rises just like me and and uh, and our industry and and everybody else. So, but it's one of the problems also with with forcing. Um, councils in more affluent suburbs to make you know development sites available because it's you know like it's still it cost land costs more in 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 some suburbs than it does in other suburbs so so it's like slightly naive but anyway on that 
Um, but but interestingly too, and you know, I, I mentioned um, my my commitment and and um, uh, my desire for us to see inclusionary zoning. Um, I that absolutely needs a long lead time. So a developer buying a block of land today, um, in an affluent suburb or not. They are doing their feasibility and they will pay an amount of money based on what they think um, and when they think they can bring that product to market, how much, you know, how long they how long that's going to take and, and what they're going to be able to get for it as a result. So if we bring in something like inclusionary zoning, we must stage it and we must give people long a long enough lead time. So if we said as a country, in five years, five percent of every development with more than 16 dwellings. So, you know, one out of 16 has got to be for affordable rental. And we allow people to make their feasibility planning, um, land banking, you know, purchase decisions based on knowing that, that that's going to come in in five years, find a way, it'll happen, right? Um, this is a, a very sophisticated, a very capable industry. And I believe, you know, our, our colleagues have, have got more than enough now to be able to make that work. It happens everywhere overseas. So there's no reason to think that Australian property developers aren't at least as smart and aren't at least as good as their European and North American colleagues. Um, and then we say in 10 years, it's got to be a bigger number. And in 20 years, it's got to be bigger still, right? But um, in the short term, um, I do think it's completely appropriate to incentivise um, the uh, the private industry, whether it's a waiving in fees, whether it's a higher density or a bonuses. As I said before, though, as long as those things are safeguarded and and that the, um, the homes that are produced are indeed um, used for and provided uh, for uh, within the context in which those approvals were given. Michelle, we've had um, Jeremy from Breathe, Ar Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architects. We've had um, uh, Chris from Assemble Communities um, on years ago. Um, like Nightingale Housing, we're going to get them on it. We, we so I mean, they have seen had some amazing success. I mean, Nightingale win you know pretty much every development award for uh, new projects. They just are, and they've got I mean they've got twelve projects on. They've got a th ten thousand people on their waiting list, etc. So, do you think that we've we've got some great case studies where density's done well, and it also um, can be done cheaper if certain things are avoided, right? Which there's you know, parking or, you know, there's lots of things they do. Um, do you think we should be using them as almost our guinea pigs to expand it out and getting access to super money? I mean, um, you know, that's what Assemble sort of figured out is that, you know, the superannuation funds that have trillions of dollars now that, you know, it actually makes sense to have a bit of exposure to residential real estate with long-term tenants when you've got, um, you know, people going to retirement who need steady income. So, is that a solution that doesn't get enough airtime and should be pushed up the the list? Gosh, you've just said about ten really interesting, important things. Let me see if I can if I can knock some of them off. Um, should superannuation uh, capital be invested in the provision of social and affordable housing? Yes. Uh, for that to happen, it is actually a little bit more complex than what you might imagine. Um, part of the solution is to have um, our industry, our product formally recognised as social infrastructure, um, not as residential housing. It changes the risk profile. Um, that is absolutely consistent with Infrastructure Australia, which is the government body that says, in fact, one of their top priorities to the government um, is invest in social and affordable housing. It's right up there um, with roads and hospitals and schools and, you know, 
IT systems and stuff. So that's that's a driver. The other thing, of course, quite rightly, as as you know, member members, um, we want our super to be uh, to be safe and to be secure. That's why recognising social and affordable housing as social infrastructure is a really good, sensible enabler, um, because it's we don't have anywhere near the sort of fluctuations. It's a very low risk profile, so that's possible. Most superannuation funds are only investing for 10 years, maybe 15. It's not long enough. This needs to be for at least 25 to 40 years, uh, as indeed you would with other infrastructure. So that's really important. And again, it changes their expectations and the way they need to go around um, uh, delivering returns. It's why the previous federal government, when they introduced NIFIC and the social um, investment bonds that were then directed into the supply of social and affordable housing, was such a fabulous enabler. And we got billions of dollars of investment because it was backed by government guarantee. Um, it was safe. And, and it was really a, always oversubscribed, actually, that, that, uh, those government bonds. So they were great. So, so we should do more of that. Um, there's no reason in the world why states and territories couldn't be looking at those sorts of options too. Um, and indeed, the ESG agenda um, is driving um, superannuation funds to, to look at that too. So, so that all makes really good sense. Um, some of the other stuff um, that you mentioned around um, the the product mix and the type, density, yes, of course, we should have density. Um, we're all talking about the missing middle. We all know that a three-story walk-up is awesome when you're in your in your 20s, maybe in your 30s by the time you've got a stroller um, or you've had your knee replacement, not a great option, but we all know that that's a really good thing to do. And so, yes, we should have more three-stories. Um, my colleagues at City West Housing in, um, in Sydney um, won a land and environment court decision, which is fabulous. Um, to reduce the amount of private individual parking that was required yeah. in one of their projects that's very well located for bus and train transport by replacing private vehicle spaces with go-get spaces. What an, what a, what an obvious, amazing thing to do. Innovation. Let, ooh, indeed. <laughs> one might say common sense. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, I, I'm trying to do that in, in one of our big projects in, um, in DAPTO. Um, I, I think the ratio, I think it was something like seven to one. So they replaced seven spaces with one. I mean, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some cool stuff like that. Um, but, but again, um, you know, Nightingale, great, you know, great idea. Um, really hard to roll out at scale, really hard. Um, it's like, it's like tiny homes. It's like, you know, you mentioned earlier, Chris, the idea of renting your bedroom. We've been doing that for decades. Like, didn't everybody have a flatmate at some stage? Like, again, that's not really rocket science, but nor does it work, um, you know, for everybody on every occasion. Um, indeed, it's, it's also... Um, uh, not appropriate to have an expectation that an older person or an older couple is going to be, you know, somehow made to feel guilty because they're still living in their four-bedroom home because somebody somewhere else has decided that it would be more appropriate for a family to live there. Well, who are you to decide how 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 and where somebody else's mum and dad or grandparents, you know, grow old? That that's just not okay. We mustn't demonise uh, individuals. Um, because of, um, you know, decades of policy failure. Uh, Michelle, can you finish this up with a property dumbo? Um, obviously, it's a very serious conversation, so it's nice to finish on hopefully a more humorous light. 
My Dumbo at the moment is I think there's really great work being done in New South Wales um, to have a look at how do we optimise uh, land around transport hubs and transport links. Um, and I think that's really sensible and a really good idea. We've got to make sure that the bureaucracy doesn't get in the way. Um, heard a really funny thing, which is kind of funny, sad. Um, I was in a, uh, a private industry um, meeting the other day and they said they wrote to nine ministers, all uh, with immediate direct influence around issues of housing and residential housing supply. So, you know, read everything from the housing minister, the planning minister, infrastructure to small business to this, to that, to everything else. Seven of the nine ministers sent the letter to somebody else and said, not my problem. Housing is everybody's problem, um, and so and so we need not just the housing and the planning minister coming to the table, but we need uh, we need infrastructure and we need transport and we need health and we need yeah, everybody right. coming to the table and saying, okay, this is this is uh, this is our problem. Um, so it's our solution to find. I was actually watching a really um, I forget the name of the title, but I actually paid six dollars on uh, Fetch um, to to watch this. It's uh. So not about an old chap and it's um back in the 1930s and basically yeah he's starting to work in a government office and someone comes about a, it was a problem around i think it was housing and they just literally went up the stairs and they went to another office and said it's not my problem and then went downstairs to another room and said it's not my problem and it's the all the areas of government just blaming each other and um it's funny that was probably 100 years ago uh when that was you know trying to recreate and it's still what we do today so yeah well it's it's it might also be a reason why i don't watch utopia i got enough shovel ready options um i, I don't need anybody else telling me that they're a good idea <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for coming on michelle thank you both so much if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming q a episode you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au if you like what you're hearing please share this episode with others you feel would benefit and while you're at it why not leave us an itunes review five stars would be great i know that sounds a bit cringy but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our